We are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, so if you have a Bible, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 6 and kind of hover around verse 25, we're going to pick it up uh, where we left off last time. This is week 8. How many of you were here, by the way, last week when we talked about your treasure and I disappointed everyone? Yeah, okay. Um, we, we uh, or at least I tried to formulate a sentence that was sort of like a file that allowed us to put everything that Jesus has been saying in this sermon into it so that we know what he's saying in, to, in totality. So I gave you this sentence, and I'm going to use it again this morning to start our, our, our conversation, but this entire sermon, 5, 6, and 7 of, of Matthew, uh, is the singular description of kingdom life in the fallen world. In other words, uh, all of it, not just some of it, not selectively picking and choosing what you want, but every bit of what Jesus has said here is the way kingdom citizens believe and behave in this world. That's what, what he's called us to do. So, in fact, I ended last week uh, with a, a decision. I think Jesus gave it to us, a decision to make in verse 24. Let's go back and just read that. Here's what he says to conclude his thoughts on treasuring the wrong things. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Now, let's stop here for a second. L- let's add to that, God and. Just leave it alone. Whatever it is in your life you want to serve, God and. You can't serve God and stuff. You can't serve God in your money. You can't serve God in your image. You can't serve God in your family. You can't serve God in your career. You can't serve God in something else. That's Jesus' point here, okay? And so we left you with this decision. I think Jesus did. Is Jesus your master? Will you make Jesus your king? That's, that's a great response to that entire section on treasuring the wrong things. Is Jesus your king? Now, I don't know what you picture um, when you think of a king, but I think everybody deals with a little bit of heretical imagination when you think of a king. You know, we get, whatever, we get a caricature of a king from watching movies. Uh, my guess is that most of you in here have seen Braveheart. Have you seen the movie Braveheart? Well, there's a king. King Henry, uh, not Henry, Edward I, who is Longshanks, right? And now, I'm not saying Jesus is evil like that, so don't get me wrong here. But there is a personality to every king I've ever kind of visually seen depicted. And and it's this personality. Um, Whenever I think of a king, I think of kings who are so strong and so domineering that just their presence creates a responsiveness or an obedience in their subjects. Like anxiety, like kings use their position to stress the subjects to such a degree that the subjects will do what the king wants them to do. That's kind of a caricature, at least in my mind. Is that fair? Like we've seen enough kings in our, in, in our life in that sense to kind of see that story, right? Kings use anxiety to keep us in our place. Fear is a great tool for compliance, right? Okay. But if there's anything not true of Jesus aside from him being the antithesis to evil whatsoever, our God doesn't establish his kingship by cultivating anxiety in his people. It's just the opposite. Remember, we've been talking from the very beginning in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the upside down world of the kingdom, okay? In fact, it's just the opposite of establishing anxiety. The point of God's kingship is to free his people from their fear. That is why Jesus came. Okay, Our king doesn't need to keep us anxious in order to establish his power and his greatness. Instead, our king uses his power and his greatness to free us from fear and anxiety. Completely different than any other king you or the world has ever seen. He came to set us free. 
So that's what's winsome about this story. That's what's winsome about his instruction, okay? That is what this text is about. A king to free you from your worry. That's why he came, okay? So here's a promise this morning. If you're a Christian, by that I mean you're a follower of Jesus, you have made him your Lord and master, he is your your king, then this subject, this issue of worry is his will for you. He doesn't want you to worry. So just get ready for that. This is his promise and his will for us this morning. So let's do what we always do. Let's just read it in context here. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit's help and see what God has to say. We're going to pick it up in verse 24 and read it to verse 34 just to get the the kind of running theme here. But here's what Jesus says. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You either will hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm asking for help this morning. Precision, I'm asking that you prevent me from saying anything you didn't say. But I I ask as well that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts to see from your vantage point as king what you're offering to us, your people. I pray we see it precisely as you say it. We'd recognize where we uh, wander off and that we would repent and come back to the king. Lord, help us see it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, I'm gonna make some assumptions about what we know this morning, but, but as a Christian, you know that you're not supposed to murder, right? Because if you, if you think that's okay, we gotta do another sermon before I get to this, but not good to murder, right? We're not supposed to lie, just keep shaking your head if you're tracking with me. Not supposed to steal. You know this. You're not supposed to commit adultery. Yeah, we know all this. Okay. We, we know those classically big ones. Uh, uh, we take these sins seriously. Um, and, and to be fair, if we ever have, because our loving um, heart for God that he generated and is wrapped in this body of flesh that has a tendency and inclination to go sin, even in those other ways, even if we do fall in some of those things, if we steal, if we lie, or whatever, we repent. The Holy Spirit moves in us and we leave the sin and pursue our Savior. But we don't, we don't make stories about our failures, do we? We don't blog about it and say, hey, by the way, I struggled with stealing again. You know, we, we don't do that. Worry is the acceptable sin. It is what Christians have no problem with doing all the time. Worry um, is the, in our minds, not God's mind, a reasonable sin. Most of us, when we worry, we don't worry in secret, 
repent of it, move on. We worry out loud. In fact, they've made wonderful tools for this. It's called Facebook. Right? You can blog it. You can go, I'm freaked out about, and you just go for it. And you're energizing and exercising all this worry out loud because it's therapeutic maybe, but it's the acceptable sin. Somehow, somehow what God forbids for his people is now okay in the church. All right? Here in this passage, Jesus is teaching his, his followers, his children, that worrying is a serious problem. Because it's a sign that you're doing just the opposite of what he constructed us last week. It's a sign that you're treasuring the wrong thing. That's what worry is. That's true. If we're honest, when we worry, it's never, tell me this isn't true. When we worry, it's never about the kingdom of God, is it? You're not blogging that. Hey, I woke up this morning, I'm convinced Jesus changed his mind. It's not by grace alone, through faith. He's made it a standard of works. I'm I have no hope. We don't worry like that because God doesn't change. He's faithful to his promises. We don't freak about the kingdom. We freak about this place. We worry about the wrong things. We worry about treasures here on on this earth. And that's why Jesus goes after this issue because worry, get this church, is worldliness. It is in every form. It's kind of like this. It's almost a schizophrenic Christian mind. It's like there's a thing coming our way. And it's like we switch off the reality of God in our lives just for a moment to emote and then feel bad and switch back. Uh, uh. Freak? Not freak. It's called worry. It's stress, okay? Worry is a serious problem and it's always been that way. It's interesting to me to, me to note that it doesn't matter what century you look at, no matter how far you go back, worry's always been there. It doesn't really matter about the conditions in, in your life. It doesn't matter if you are in the middle of peace or the middle of war. People worry. It doesn't, ma- doesn't matter if you have a lot or if you have a little. I used to think my major problem with stress was that I needed more. I really thought, like, you know, if I had enough, then I'd, people who have a lot don't have enough worry. And then I've met a bunch of people who have a lot, and they just worry about a lot more things. It doesn't seem to calm it. It doesn't matter how much you have or where you live or what, what you don't have or what you do have. It's all kind of there. It's, it's for this reason, though. Worry isn't a circumstantial issue. Worry is a spiritual one. That's why Jesus is coming after in the context of his lordship over our life. All these things are spiritual issues. And next up in line is our stress and our anxiety, okay? That's why Jesus follows up the whole teaching on treasure by dealing with worry because he knows we treasure the wrong things and he knows we worry about what we treasure. That's what he knows. And and you might be sitting here today and saying, "Um, not me. Um... I don't worry. I'm kind of chill. I don't stress about it. My wife's stressed, not me. I'm just cool, all the time cool. Well, let, let's add to our understanding of worry so that we can all feel bad. Um, <laughs> when you think about worry and stress, yes, it is fear. You, you start there. That's kind of the beginning of the definition of, of, of worry. It is like, I'm afraid I'm going to get sick. I'm afraid I am sick. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. I'm afraid I'm going to lose my money. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this loved one. This person's going to die. I'm afraid of this car accident. I'm afraid of the election, which is okay to be afraid of that, by the way. Um, <laughs> but there's another side to, to fear, and it's the ambitious side. This is where all of us get stuck. You might be more chill than somebody else, but, but there's this ambition type of worry. It's like I'm worried about getting somewhere in my life. Like I've drawn a picture of what success looks like, an achievement looks like, 
and acceptance looks like. And everything has to work to accomplishing that goal. I, I talk to enough 20-somethings, and they're stressed to the nine about all this stuff in the future. What, what, what should I study? What internship should I take? What if it doesn't work out? What am, I, what am I doing? It has to become, I have to succeed. Well, no longer are we worried about getting sick and dying or a car accident. We're worried about some image we've shaped a desire for, and we're stressing to get to that. So if, if we're fair, if we're honest, everyone in our life somewhere deals with some or both of those at some point. Maybe it depends on your stage of life, okay? Here in this passage, Jesus lays down for us a command. Church, get this. It's a command. Just like do not murder, it's a command not to worry for everyone. Let me, let me pull three different phrases out of uh, verses 24, 25, and 33 to give you the outline, I think, of this whole section, this paragraph. Here's what we've already seen so far. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You can't love God and. That's what he said. You can't love, love God and. and. Then verse 25, he says, therefore, don't be anxious. Because the implication is just follow God, love God. Don't love two things, love one thing, love the right thing, therefore don't be anxious. And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There, there is two basic thoughts in this paragraph we're looking at today. It's pretty simple. Church, you have to fight against worry. You have to fight against worry. Just like every other sin you fight and press against. And you have to live for the kingdom of God. Those go together. Okay, the first thing that Jesus makes clear in this section is that we are to fight, fight, wage war with worry. And here's why, and I've already told you, because it is a spiritual issue. Uh, let me pause to, to make sure that I'm clear about something, okay? What Jesus is not saying here, that you shouldn't be concerned about earning a living. You know, like you just lay on the couch and God drops really cool potato chips from heaven in your mouth and you just sit there and no stress, no, no worries. Um, it's not that he is saying that you don't have to care for your family and it's not saying that Christians are people, special people, unique breed of people. They don't experience problems. So therefore, because you don't have problems, you don't have to worry. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, in verse 34, we read it, Jesus implies that there will be trouble. Trouble is in our future. It's probably in our present Clearly was in our past. Trouble's a part of this story. So Jesus isn't saying don't worry because there's the absence of trouble. He's telling the church don't worry because there's the presence of God. You understand there's a big difference. He doesn't change the circumstances so that our natural inclinations are to be just what we are. He changes what we are so that we can respond to these other circumstances called trouble with a kingdom perspective. Jesus is king. Now, before we get to the logic, I think, of what Jesus is saying in this section to remind us not to worry, let, let me tell you where I think the source of the problem might be, why it happens in us. Uh, one possible source would be that we have a trust problem with God. So, some people would say, I don't know if he's all-powerful. So my problem, my concern, my issues might be to the, kind of to the level of his inability, like it's just short of his capacity to, to help me. Some people trust or have a bad understanding of God's power and abilities, and I've never been that guy. I mean, I'm, this is not boasting. I've just never struggled with thinking God could do anything he wanted to do. You know where I struggle? Thinking that he would care to do it for me. I don't know if you ever feel this way. Like I, when I'm in a problem, I don't go, man, he's probably 
weak at this right now. He probably couldn't do anything. I don't think that at all. I think he's probably distracted doing something else, something more and more valuable than dealing with, with me, right? He's got, he's got other, other things. He's disinterested or whatever. There's another source of worry, and that is this. We have a submission problem. So if we got a trust problem, we got a submission problem. We say, and it's so easy, by the way, church is a classic place where people say, oh, he's king. Only in you. You sing it. Right? We sing those things. I want to be my king, but in reality, you want to be king. In reality, you want to be in control. You want to work things out to your advantage you really think what's, you know what's best for your life and your needs. So you have a submission problem. Yes, Jesus, thank you very much for my fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Now just stay over there and let me do my life. Let me lead. Submission problem. There's a third source of this worry, and that is um, we have an ambition problem. We worry because we are more like the world than we dare believe. We want what the world wants. We seek comfort from what the world provides. So we stress about losing what it offers. I think we need to stop and ask some questions right now because here's what I never know. I never know how many people come really truly believe in Jesus as king. But in a number this large, there's probably somebody who doesn't. And I'm just asking you, this is, this is not now a bunch of work to lay on your head. This is a question to answer. And the question to answer is pretty, pretty simple. Is your worry evidence that you don't trust in King Jesus in the first place? Because if, if we start talking about the pragmatics of how Christians or believers deal with worry, and you don't trust in Jesus, well, this is going to make you even more anxious. Because you don't have the capacity, even if I gave you pointers, to address your issues. Your issues are spiritual ones. They're heart-connected ones. And the only way for the heart to be transformed is by Jesus rescuing it from its death and its blindness. And he does it by faith. This wonderful transaction. You hear me talk about it all the time. Your sin for his righteousness. You submit yourself to Jesus and God opens up heaven's wrath for your sin, not on you, but on his son. And you go free by faith. You put your faith and trust in that, and you go totally free. No condemnation, no judgment. As far as the east is from the west, they can't get better than that. But if you're here going, yeah, I got trust, I got worry issues, I got them, amen, brother, bring it. And I start telling you, here's what Jesus suggests, is the foolishness of worry, and you haven't trusted in King Jesus, we're, we're totally missing the main point. This whole sermon is a sermon from the king to the citizens of the kingdom, period. So the question to ask before we kick into worry, is he your king? Is he really your king? I'm, I'm okay if you say yes and I struggle. We all are there. But is he really your king? It is the, sort of the same question we left you with last week. Where is your treasure? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus your treasure over all things? Okay. Then you're ready to hear this next section. Um, I want you to know how silly this next section is in its obviousness to a believer. In fact, I read it this week, I've read it a thousand times, but when I was getting ready to preach it, I thought, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. It is so obvious. It is so simple. You don't need a preacher for this at all. Jesus is making logical conclusions about what worry is and isn't. And we, we're going to unpack it, and you're going to go, wow, ugh, ugh, what am I worrying for? 
And that's Jesus' point here. Jesus gives us what I call six arguments to help us fight worry. Here's the first argument, okay? The first argument is the argument of priorities. Look at verses 25 and 26 again, where Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then he goes on to talk about the birds. They don't, they don't gather or reap or whatever, okay? Jesus starts with this argument of priorities. And by the way, before we limit Jesus' discussion and confrontation to just food and clothing and shelter, let's expand the context. It is the definition of Jesus' aunt, which in our world, most of us don't, don't struggle with hunger. That would be my assumption. I'm not saying that by looking at you, by the way. I'm just saying <laughs> we don't struggle with hunger. Nor am I worried about you going home and trying to find a place, you know, out in the street to sleep, although some people have that issue. Nor am I worried necessarily that you don't have a shirt to put on or pants to wear or whatever. Let's expand this Jesus and to include our struggles, these things that are deals, issues with us, like, you know, this priority of not just drinking food and clothing, but houses and cars and 401s and careers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, everything else that we've added to what we need. Don't be anxious about your life. That's what he says, okay? It's fascinating to me that these words are 2,000 plus years old and we still stress over screwed up priorities. Everybody has. These people actually needed clothes and a place to sleep, and food. And Jesus confronts them on their sin. We stress all the time about the wrong things. Here's what Jesus is saying, and it's obvious. Life is more than things. Church, do you believe that? Okay, life is more than things. But what does your world tell you? Life is things. Isn't that true? I'm going to sit down today, and Lord willing, I'm going to watch a godless amount of football. All right? And I'm going to see probably in the first quarter 10 commercials that tell me to buy something, own something, have something, and I'll have life. True? You, you know the magazines they put in the pocket of the seat in front of you on an airplane? And they're commercial from front to back, and it's about all the things you never knew existed that you can't live without. <laughs> that stuff. That's all our world does. Life is about things. Get more, have, have more life. Je Jesus simply says, don't buy it. Life is more than things. That's what he says. So get your priorities right. If you're stressing about things, which you have to be, you have to be because you can't stress about the kingdom because the kingdom has never let you down. You're stressing about things. Jesus simply says to you, examine what you think is important. Your priorities are all upside down and backwards if you're stressing about things because life is more than things. Okay, here's the second argument Jesus makes against uh, or for fighting against this worry. He says it's the argument of provision, verses 26 through 28. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus makes an obvious argument here where he says, God provides for the birds, doesn't he? And don't the flowers grow with the most beautiful colors all the time? Don't they do that? 
That's his point. It's pretty simple. If God provides for the lesser creatures and the lesser things, can't that convince you not to worry knowing that he is your father? These birds and flowers don't have a personal relationship with Jesus to the father. You do. Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus had you on his mind and all of your transgressions numbered and labeled and nailed to the cross. Yours. Not a plant, not a bird. And Jesus simply says, look, he takes care of these lesser things. He clothes these lesser, lesser things. What are you thinking? That somehow when he gets to you, he's going to be disinterested or distracted? You see how simple this is, right? Like, what are you thinking? If he cares for them, aren't you certain he'll care for you? He says in verse 26, are you not of more value than they I read this like sarcasm from Jesus. Come on, church. Come on, for, for real. You're, you're the children of the king. I've got you. Everything you need, I've got. If he provides for the birds, he'll completely provide for you. Why are you worried? There's another promise to provide, and we're jumping ahead a little bit. Verse 33, look at this, where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What does that mean? Like you've got your list of worries, and you try hard to um, seek after the kingdom first, and then all the things you worry about you're going to get? Does that mean that Christians don't ever, don't, aren't ever hungry, aren't ever homeless, are never naked? Is that what that means, that he makes it a promise to meet all those things in, in that perfect way? Well, you know better than that, Right? The scriptures tell us that Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head. Over and over again, he's, he's warned the church, hey, by the way, they're going to hate you. Suffering is your future. Rejection is your future, right? There have been Christians who've been poor, Christians who've been naked, and Christians who've been homeless, and there still are. So this is not a promise of God to make certain you don't have those things if you seek first the kingdom of heaven. Here's what it means, okay? Everything you need, and I mean everything. If you need food, if you need clothing, if you need shelter, if you need money, if you need health, if you need an education, whatever you need, whatever it is you need for the glory of God, to live out his will, he'll give it to you. That's why it can be so various in, in the ways that Christians live. If God has for you, for his glory and his will in your life, that you have much and you're a testimony with much, well, then you're going to have much. But if God says, no, 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 you're going to be one of those little people. You're going to be a servant without very much, but you'll have everything you need. You need money, you need food, I'll take care of it. Whatever you, whatever you need to live for my glory and live in my will, I'll give you. That's why, that's why you can see the variety of ways that people, Christians, live in this world. It's not that God promises an even Stephen life for all. He promises to be enough for all. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on. I told you these arguments are fairly, fairly obvious, so I'm embarrassed that... I'm, I ever worry, but here we go. Here's the third argument that Jesus makes. It's the argument of logic. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? <laughs> All right, you should be blushing because that's true, right? Common sense. What good does worry do? Honestly, what does it get you? What's the answer? Nothing. Never has, never will. Oh, wait a minute. No, there is something. There is, there is something where he can give you. It can kill you. If that's what you want, go for it. 
My wife is some of it a health nut. She was here last hour, so I already apologize, so I can say it now. Um, she is super healthy and reads all this stuff about nutrition and supplements that make you healthy, okay? And she's observant of all the things that make you, you know, do well physically. And uh, so I knew I was doing this passage, and I just sent her a text this week. Honey, tell me, tell me what stress does to people, physically speaking, anxiousness and worry. This, this I'm calling Sue's list. Um, here you go. Depression, anxiety, weight problems, autoimmune diseases, skin conditions, reproductive issues, pain, heart disease, digestive problems, sleep problems, cognitive and memory problems. That's what you want? Go for it. It's, it's obvious. What can you add to your life by worry? Other than pretending to be concerned about things that don't belong to you, behaving like God and stressing at such a level, you don't survive it. There is a study from the University of Wisconsin. Now, by the way, this is an unbelieving study. So this is not people surveying Christians or a kingdom perspective whatsoever, but just general people. They surveyed this, this discussion about worry. And 40% of those they surveyed um, say that they worry about things that never happened, never will happen. Just crazy worry. Uh, 30% of the worrying is about things that are over and past, that worrying will not contribute to this change of anything, okay? So these things are gone, long gone. 10% were considered petty worries, 12% were considered needless health worries, and, and this is an unbeliever group now, concluded that 8% were relatively real, <laughs> okay? I'm suggesting to you when a believer plugs in Jesus as king, there's no percents, no worry. But even, even from an unbeliever's perspective, they're saying 92% is kind of a baloney. Just doesn't make any sense to worry. Doesn't accomplish anything. No duh, Jesus already told us. What's the point? Okay, let's go on. Here's number four, the ar another argument to fight against worry, the argument of faith. Verse 32, he says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows what you need them, that you need them all. Okay, the word for Gentiles here is another word called pagan. Pagan is a word to describe an unbeliever. So what Jesus is simply saying here is that whenever we worry, we are behaving like unbelievers. Worry is an unbelieving activity. That's what worry is. But unbelievers, by the way, people who don't trust in Jesus, people who don't have a savior, people who think that, that God is not real or real enough to serve, either way, they are consumed with all this stuff that they worry about because this is all there is and this is as good as it's gonna get for them. That's the reality. And by the way, I believe unbelievers should worry because they have something to worry about. Every person who doesn't trust in Jesus alone for salvation carries around with him every day the weight of his own sin without any help. He carries around with him the litany list of transgressions, transgressions, and he feels it. The secrets that he keeps and the darkness in his heart and the inclinations of his life, every unbeliever has no place to go with that. There is no savior for a person who rejects God's only solution. And they're alone with that. They're hopeless about tomorrow because they don't know what tomorrow brings. They have no promise of a future. They're only hoping that whatever version of life they can develop for themselves, maybe tomorrow will be better, but they have no no hope, and, and most of them have gone far enough into tomorrow to realize that doesn't work either. Most unbelievers have a purposeless life. They don't know why they're doing it or why they're here. They don't have answers to questions, and all that they try only fails to fix the problem. Listen, I really believe this, Christian. Worry just might be the greatest example of anti-God thinking there is. 
just might be. I don't believe in God when I worry. If, if God is shaping the scope and the times of your life, if he is putting you conditionally everywhere you belong, every place you need to be, your circumstances have nothing to do with whether God is real or not. And if a Christian is always chapping against what God is doing, and he's always worrying about the place in his life, he's in, in essence saying, I don't really know if I believe in him any, anymore. Or right now, let's put it that way. So, if you and I, and I have to condition this, if you and I truly are believers, if we really believe in Jesus, we have absolutely nothing to worry about. I mean, I suppose I should qualify that other than having some false belief or some false idol get totally smashed by the love of Christ. Here's why. Because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that what Paul said in Colossians 3? Your life is in him. Everything you ever needed, everything you ever wanted is wrapped up in Jesus and your life is hidden, hidden with Christ in God. Let me give you the fifth argument that Jesus presents, the argument of relationship. Verse 32, again says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Here's why we don't worry, church, because this is very personal for God. I love that. It's very personal for him. He describes himself as our father. He is the perfect depiction of the best image of a father you've ever dreamed times a million. I don't do very many things well, but I love being a dad. I don't know how good I am. I try hard, okay? And I'm fairly, I'm almost retired, to be honest with you. Um, I love the whole thing about being a dad. But as much as I care about that stuff, as much as I tried and all that stuff, my, my version of dad, oh, so, so puny compared to father in heaven. I mean, just think about how you would, how would you describe the best dad in the world? He's committed. My dad is faithful. Is there another word? Is there a better word you would use to describe your father? Faithful to you. Committed to you. In spite of you in spite of the moments where you do freak out and stress out and act like there is no God. He doesn't go away. He doesn't wear out on your tendencies. Our God is faithful and he's true and he's committed to us. Our Father, unlike most earthly fathers, he's compassionate at a level I can't even spell. He, He understands, he's caring. He is so caring, he is aware of before I feel, when I feel, and after I feel in every, every nuance of my life. He cares. He knows. I was kind of prided myself of being an aware father. But, but our father in heaven, he knows. He knows everything. He knows motive. He knows inclinations. He knows our weaknesses in ways we can't even define. He's a, he knows. He's aware. He's precise. Perfect response. Always a perfect response to me. Always a perfect response to my need. He is so right on all the time. My Father in heaven is gracious. He's always treating me different than what I deserve. Always. And he never, ever lets up. Here's what Jesus says to the church who has a tendency to worry and freak. He says, listen, your heavenly Father, this is personal to him. You you don't worry because he's more into your future than you are. Whatever you're stressing about, he's way ahead of you in all avenues of life. This is personal. We are his children. 
He is a perfect father. Jesus says, so don't, don't worry. Here's the sixth argument to fight against worry. The argument of speculation. Jesus says in verse 34, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I think in Jesus' final common sense argument is that you don't know the future, so don't waste your time speculating on the future. All right? Let's be honest, Jesus makes it pretty clear here that trouble is in our future. He's saying trouble will come. We, we know that trouble will come. In fact, the NIV uh, translating this verse says it this way, each day has enough trouble of its own. Anybody know that? Amen. Every day's got a bucket of trouble. All the, they all do. But here's what we never know. Other than generally knowing trouble's coming, we don't know what trouble, do we? And we don't know when trouble, do we? We don't know stuff like that. And Jesus is simply saying, therefore, it makes absolutely no sense to worry about its coming. Don't speculate on what kind of trouble, how big the trouble is, or how long the trouble will last. Don't go there. Don't do that. Here's what you do, church. Leave tomorrow alone. That's what he says. Tomorrow has enough, enough trouble of its own. Stay here. Stay here today. Don't, don't speculate on the trouble, or the size of the trouble, the scope of the trouble, or the timing of the trouble in your future. Leave tomorrow alone. So here in 10 verses, Jesus has just seen to it that, to tell us to fight against worry and to remember our priorities. We live for the kingdom. To remember that God provides for his children. To remember that it doesn't even make sense because worry accomplishes nothing. To remember that this is an issue of faith. What do we really believe? And to remember also that we have a father in heaven who cares for us in ways we can't even imagine. And to remember the absurdity of speculation on trouble because it doesn't make a difference. I told you it was somewhat embarrassing. Right? It's obvious. Jesus is just being very practical here. It doesn't make any sense. And I think if we got our arms around just those things Jesus says, I think our, our response to stress would be different. But there is verse 33 we need to deal with, and I think this unlocks the entire direction of an anxious, free church. He says in verse 33, that our highest purpose is to live for the kingdom of God. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Here's what I want you to do. This is the practical part. We all worry. We all sin. When you catch yourself worrying, I want you to stop. Stop long enough to start asking yourself a few questions. Here's somewhat of the kind of questions I think we should ask each other. Tim, you're worrying. What's the most important thing in your life? What is it? What's the most important thing? You're, you're worrying. Tim, do you live for and long for the rule of King Jesus? Is, is that true? Is it God's kingdom first? I mean, you said it. Do you remember? Is, is God's kingdom what you're all about? Is it your highest aim to be holy? Not happy, but holy. Is it your highest aim? Is his agenda? Is that your desire? Okay, here's what I know. The conclusion of all those answers, I'm going to say what? Yes. Yes, I really want that. I, I really do. And if that's what I really want, that's what I already have. That's all what I already have. No need to worry. Nothing's stopping me from getting everything I really always, always want. I want the kingdom. I want the agenda of God. I want his lordship in my life. Well, I, I got it. No, no worries. 
So just remember this. This is always true. If you're worrying, you're not thinking about the kingdom of God. There's something else in your life that's risen too high. That's why these two passages, the one on treasure and the one on uh, worry, go hand in hand because typically we worry about what we treasure. Is that not true? Okay. I think to, to know the sequence of verse 33 is helpful too. Don't forget this order, all right? You and I are not just to seek the kingdom and righteousness. That's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is to seek first, right? Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, okay? In other words, above everything else. Above your wife, above your kids, above your money, above your job, above your health, above anything and everything, above your future, whatever it is, seek first his kingdom. First his kingdom. That's what he says. All right, now let me, let me help you understand this. It's absolutely essential that you understand seeking the kingdom of God is not about a place. Seeking the kingdom of God is about a person. Seeking the kingdom of God is about seeking Jesus. We kind of made fun of it a couple weeks ago when Paul said, well, if there's a question, and the answer is always Jesus. Well, in this case, it's true. Seek Jesus first. This whole thing comes down to trusting a person. So here's some questions, church. Is your king sufficient for your problems? What do you think? Is, is your king's love for you greater than all of your insecurities? What do you think? Is, is your king's control over your life so much greater than your own control? Totally, right? Are your king's promises reliable? Do you believe that your king is working all things, not some things, but all things together for your good and his glory? Do you believe that? Is your king Jesus? If it's Jesus then you can obey this. If your king is anything else, you're stuck. If there's anything else you serve, anything else you love more than him, you can't have him. You have to come to the cross of Jesus empty, bankrupt. Remember, that's where we started. You lay all the stuff and all the things and all the idols and all the wannabes and all the insecurities, you lay them aside and say, I'm a mess, I want you. Seek first the king and his righteousness and all that stuff you're stressing about. He's got you. He's got you covered. Do you believe that, church? Let me read to you a, a little quote by Piper. The best reason to stop being anxious is that when you do, God starts being anxious for you. It's such a foolish thing to insist on carrying anxious burdens when, which God has promised to carry for us when we put his kingly honor first in everything we do. The main point of all this is clear and unmistakable. Jesus does not want his followers to be anxious. He does not secure his kingdom by keeping his subjects in a state of worry. On the contrary, according to verse 33, the more primary, the more central his kingship becomes in our lives, the less anxiety we will have. Jesus came, Jesus lived, he died and rose from the dead in order that he might reign as king over an anxiety-free people. So come to Jesus. Forsake all other allegiances. Take your vow of loyalty to the king of kings and seek first in all you do to make known his kingship over your life. This and this alone is the way to freedom from fear and worry. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We, we get so caught up in feeling what we feel and seeing what we see 
And experiencing what we experience that we forget there's a greater narrative always running, and that is that Jesus is Lord over every circumstance of our life. We have nothing to worry about. God, help us work hard because you've called us to. Help us to love much because you called us to. But help us to lay down stress, worry, and anxiety. It is a sin, like all other sin, that you've commanded for us to stop. Help us to do it through the lens of trusting in the King, the good and precious King who knows our needs and meets our needs when they're there. I just, I pray that we would become a worry-free place. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.